Hello and welcome to the Awardist from Entertainment Weekly. We're taking you inside this year's best contenders for the industry's biggest awards. I'm Shana Naomi Crockmall, Digital Director at EW. I'm joined again by my co-host, EW's Awardist columnist, David Canfield. Hello, David. Hello. And EW's Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Heyman. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. This is part of lots of awards coverage that we do across EW.com, in the magazine, on social, anywhere you can find a version of EW, you will hear about awards between now um, and February. And then again, later in the year around the Emmys, but this is the film part of that. Last year we talked about the early contenders, a lot of films and projects and performances that we were excited about that came out even as early as Sundance um, through the kind of beginning part of the year, but before what we might classically call award season. And we heard from Taryn Edgerton uh, from Rocket Man a little bit. This week we're gonna talk about unexpected or unlikely performances in films. Things that might be considered a long shot but we feel adamantly should be a part of the discussion mm -hmm. and not not just in our personal passion project kind of way. We think legitimately both deserve it and there are reasons, some precedent or some, some argument we wanna make about why it should be in the discussion. Um, and we're also gonna hear from Parasite director Bong Joon-ho. Mm. Uh, who David and I spoke to and was delightful. All right, so what do we want to say? What are the types of films? Just let's start with films before we even get into individual performances. What types of films are really an uphill battle from the start to get awards recognition? Well, last week we talked a little bit about horror and particularly us, um, and the tide has turned a little on that. Jordan Peele has been a real pioneer in finding an awards audience for that genre, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure. Comedy, sort of notoriously, it has a place at the Golden Globes. A lot of them inevitably fall off by the time we get to the Oscar nominations. Comic book movies, superhero mm -hmm. movies. Um, again, changing a little bit. Changing perhaps. a little bit. I think. I think having, having the bigger best picture field for the Oscars, I think, has helped yeah. move a few of these. Even if I still always wonder if it's like kind of the sympathy nominee, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, well, we'll nominate this film because we want to acknowledge it, even if then no one sort of takes seriously that it should actually win. Yeah. I think Black Panther was the first movie where I thought, this movie really has a shot in that lane um, because it had such resonance and people, it's provoked so much serious discussion. Um, you know, I do think comedy of all of it is the one that really suffers the most. Really? Particularly, Let's start there then. Let's talk about know. it. Well, I mean, for example, I mean, we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, but The Big Sick is a classic example of mm -hmm. a movie that was critically acclaimed, wonderful, beautiful performances. Um, and in the end, like all small comedies, it seems to just kind of not yeah. gel. And I wonder if that will be the case with The Farewell, although The Farewell has a dramatic subject matter. I'll I mean, so the, the, big well. the Big Sick was like a comedy. Probably about sure it's terminal, a comedy, about, like about a coma. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was a funny mo funny podcast, rather, about a, co a coma, but um, for some reason, um, I think Academy voters are still locked into the big showy performance, the big soliloquy, mm -hmm. and you know, I think comedy really is perverse because comedy has been such a rich area in our culture as things get blacker and blacker in mm -hmm. terms of our um, outlook. Um, and the comedy has to be smarter to sort of counter that, yes. right? Or it doesn't have to be, but it can be. Yeah. So last year we saw The Favorite is really sort of the most 
clearly comedic of the films Definitely. that ended up in the right. Oscar race, right? Although it did benefit from being a period movie, I yes, think. And it for was, having English yes. actors in it. <laughs> make, it did make, feel more it makes serious. a huge difference. Yeah. Black Klansman, which I think was the most like clearly satirical sure. yes. in that way, like was obviously about a very serious thing, but treated in a, in a very... Um, more comedic fashion, Vice obviously, too. and Vice. Yeah, I, I just in a million years never think of Vice as a comedy, but like, sure, yeah. 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 And the favorite, obviously, that. Yeah, it's structured I mean, like a comedy. Olivia yeah. Coleman's performance is has got to be one of the more comic performances to win an Oscar in recent yeah. memory. Yeah, yeah. And the Globe, you know, because the Globes have a musical slash comedy, because they have musical slash comedy and drama, you see a lot of other lighter films that are sort of able to get more attention in that early January time. So we ha Crazy Rich Asians was one that, mm. you know, I think that was, we didn't necessarily expect that to end up in the Oscar conversation, but it was where I think performances in particular, Olivia Coleman and Christian Bale both won for comedic performances. Yeah. Or they won for their categories, and I think they wouldn't have necessarily been in, their performances were great. So of course yeah. we would have talked about them for the Oscars, but that level of attention and having that moment on stage, I think I said last year a lot that I feel like the there's no more persuasive campaign speech in Oscar season than your award speech when you win for the Globes. It's like your best moment to sort of convince people you should also get to well, win an Oscar. On the drama side, Glenn right? Close, that Globe speech is really what had her in it to the end. I yeah. mean, it was such a moment. Yeah. And she was so overwhelmed. I don't think that movie was going very far. I mean, obviously, at the end. Well, you know, it's one short. of those things. Hindsight is interesting, right? Because when we go back in our time machine and we go back to that moment, it really did like like Glenn Close was could never be dislodged. Yeah. But when you think about that film and you look at it now, you're like, well, clearly like, that more, wasn't the right call. It's more of like a long shot in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You're like, wait. I mean, it's I think it's, it's about the Glenn like Close a book of it all. Yes. Like, what yeah. is it? Like, she's in Oslo or <laughs> Stockholm? I can't remember. Like Nobel play, Prize. It's very, yeah. Uh, it's, it was, um, I think Coleman particularly benefited from real affection for her body of work mm -hmm. that people had seen her in, in certainly in yeah. Broadchurch and other things on television and really liked her. And she's been a working actress for a long time and she's done a lot of interest. I just believe she played Eleanor Roosevelt, didn't yeah. she? And she's like delightfully self-deprecating in all of her speeches or her interviews in a way that I think is really appealing. People but love that. The Brits have it down. That's a sucker punch, you know, the old, <laughs> oh, sh ah, shucks, you know. But I, I think with this year, I mean, it's interesting, right, when you talk about the Globes and their nominees. I mean, we talk about some films that are in contention this year or sort of on our conversational palette, right? Um, movies like Rocket Man or Hustlers, which mm -hmm. will definitely feature in the mm -hmm. Golden Globes and I think will not feature prominently in the Oscar race, but you will see performers like Taron Egerton and and uh, Jennifer Lopez be recognized potentially for what they do in those kinds of what do they call it? Musical and comedy? Mm -hmm. You know? I, yeah, so maybe going drama. Oh, that will be very I'm not sure. interesting. Well, that'll be interesting. I think Lopez will be in it a, for a Golden Globe nomination either way. Well, and I think we disagree a little on her chances. Yeah, well, I think, you know, listen. You, I, you, are, you believe she is. I believe she'll at least be nominated. Well, I think that she thanks you for that. And <laughs> um, I certainly think she's great in that film. And she is an underrated actor. Um, Wait, would we consider Hustlers a comedy? That's also in that sort of like. That's why it's a little. Yeah, it's a that's a question. I mean, I think obviously the big standouts already for us to talk about in comedy would be Dolomite. Yes. Book Smart. 
I think should be in that conversation. Yeah, it's a long shot, one. but I think it is. And would we, do we expect Jojo Rabbit to be Yes, Jojo Rabbit comedy? will, I think, almost certainly win that So category. break down, David, for me, which of those do you think, do you think all of those are likely to end up with Oscar nominations? Do you think so, the comedy helps them or hurts them? I'm really, one thing we have to talk about with Dolomite is the Netflix factor of this Oscar race, which right. is the fact that they have multiple frontrunners. We didn't, we haven't talked about the two popes yet, but that's another film that could surprise and reach a lot of the certain demographic, let's say, of the Academy. And Jonathan Price is, I think, a strong lead actor player. So you have the two popes. Marriage Story is mm -hmm. a top player. Martin Scorsese's The Irishman is a right. top player. Right. Yeah. The Netflix of it all is its own sort of unlikely long shot, but in a more compelling this way. So I, I think Dolomite, they're definitely pushing it. And Eddie Murphy's such a compelling, in my, to my mind, best actor candidate because he hasn't had a role like this in such a long time. I mean, his last nomination was for Dream Girls, which was... And this role is so much more interesting. Vibrant. And vib yeah. yeah. I, what I loved about Dolomite... I was watching this my, with my wife, and we were, and we watched it actually at home, not in the theater. And we finished the film, and she said, "I just didn't really think when we started that film that my number one word I would use to describe it at the end is charming, mm -hmm. but it was. It was like an absolutely charming movie. Yeah. Like I felt charmed by it, and in that same way that like a person like Olivia Coleman is charming, and you're like, oh yeah, we should give you awards because you're delightful. It's very winning. That was how, yes, yeah. it has that like you know overcoming adversity, and it's like." It's enjoyable the whole way through. Maybe it's not so challenging. I mean, it has its moments, I think, of being ethically challenging also, but it's, it is, it was delightful. It is um, a deeply joyful kind of movie, and it's unlike any film else that's out there. And um, from the soundtrack to the, to the subject, to the fact that obviously Eddie Murphy brought his passion for this particular person's quirky Hollywood story I think winning is a good good word for it he certainly I think they have high hopes for him yes. I, I would never um, imagine I mean it's interesting when you think about the globes of it all because some of these films will be split different ways in their categories like Jojo Rabbit we assume is going to be in the comedy category we assume Dolomite could go in there yes. and you know things will sort out differently when we look at the Academy Awards but mm -hmm. um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if this film gets the attention it, it I think it deserves and if Murphy gets the, um, he's certainly putting his best foot forward in terms of campaigning and wanting and putting himself out there. So, you know, and I think there's a deep well of affection for him. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. He the Netflix also, um, if Netflix does as well as we, I think we presume it will. It will be the year, just like at the Emmys, when we saw The Handmaid's Tale win that one year and we realized there was a real sea change in yeah. how uh, the awards were treating these films. So it would be a huge triumph for Netflix. They certainly flooded the zone, I think much more so um, last year, the Roma year, where I think I looking I mean, with Roma, it was like, I, I, Roma was the one... <clears throat> That battle we were talking about, you know, we made some bold takes in our last episode, and and one of the bold takes from last year that um, our then editor uh, Bill Keith, who was a features editor, he called Green Book winning Best Picture on our first episode, and it was a little bit from a cynical place. And I think as the season progressed, we we all sort of started to believe more and more that Roma was going to win. We were yeah. like, this really seems like this is this is Roma's to lose. Yeah. And then that sort of balance of the sort of cynicism of the 
a traditional or the stereotype of an older academy voter and like who who might sway that more towards green book which for all of the ways it was very problematic was very much in that kind of like feel good movie about yeah. how we've overcome racism and and so i think I was surprised. I was actually surprised. I didn't want to be, but I was still surprised that Roma didn't win. And but I do think it changed that. Com- they came so close, like Netflix did with for winning with that. And I think for, for so many people, <laughs> and they want right. And I, 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 I think Trump. in the end, right when you look back at that race, because I think I was right where you were in terms of um, believing the hype and sort of um, I saw Roma very early. Looking back, it feels like it won the award it was supposed to win. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a bigger debate around Green Book, obviously. But uh, looking back uh, at Roma, I feel that it it won the category it should have won. And it obviously had a lot of uh, resources and energy put behind it. And it is an interesting movie. But it's a foreign art house movie. And I think that in the end, that's not what Netflix has on offer this year, which is, right. I think... Although it is, I think, a pretty good, not, to some extent, a good parallel for us to talk about Parasite. Yes. Right? So in the foreign yes. film, and can the foreign film break through to mm-hmm. best picture and best director? To me, that's the clearest equivalent, if only because in that very, like, I don't know, in that, I think both Alfonso Cuaron and Bong Joon-ho have made English language films right. that were popular with American audiences, which shouldn't matter, but still a majority of Academy voters are Americans yes. and English speaking, and I think have this bias of like, oh, well, they've been successful here on our terms. And so they've now maybe gone home to their home countries and made a movie in their native language. It has deep significance to them. And we can also continue to take it seriously because yes. they've kind of passed our white American test earlier, right? I mean, there's a little bit yeah. of that that I think really comes into yeah, play. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I also think, though, that the paradigm hasn't shifted enough where I think those dynamics are still not in play. Meaning, yeah. I think that Parasite is pretty much a lock in the yeah. foreign film category. And I would say Best Director. Yeah. I think there is a... For a nomination. For a nomination. Best Director is actually one of the... It's the weirdest... I mean, because there's such depth to that field. That's the one where I'm sort of not even sure how it's it like could a go. Director's director, and that's I think well, how he'll get yeah. the nomination. Last year they yes. nominated because it's sure. from the direct, right? He has such a long body of work, yes. and people respect him so deeply. Last year they nominated um, Powell Palakowski. If I'm, I'm Palakowski, I believe. Apologize yeah. if I butchered his name, but for Cold War, that movie was not nominated for Best Picture. It was never going to be nominated for Best Picture, but the directors will show up. Mm-hmm. Well, I think often. you're right, and I think they're they're going to be happy with their field, and they are going to put people like him in the field. And I think we're right. looking at, I, I mean, I, I I think just throwing names out. I mean, I, you think about Noah Baumbach, you think about Martin Scorsese, you think about um, Greta Gerwig. It's going to be a pretty impressive array of directors in a field of movies that really show what directing is. And this is the first year that I've and I've been doing this for a little while, really walked out of movies thinking that was great directing. Mm-hmm. Typically, like any other boob who watches movies, I just kind of fall in love with the pretty actors mm-hmm. and 
look at what they do. But this was the first movie season I can remember really being cognizant of what of director's choices mm -hmm. and how. I mean, two films. I, I mean, I've mentioned this before, but certainly in Marriage Story and also in Little Women, where you see the choices a director makes that are to the benefit of the story and work. the performance, yeah. and that really work. Um, Gerwig should get a lot of praise for reinventing, keeping the sort of basic skeleton of Little Women, but totally reinventing the relationships and really modernizing them in a way that honors what came before. And, and are such deliberate choices. Like yes. You can really, you can truly see them in that way. From the very first scene of that movie, you're like, here are decisions that were made that are completely different from every other version of this. And importantly, happened. she's very well spoken on yes. them. She she's really communicates the ideas behind them and the sort of love that went into it. It's, you know, she's not just intellectual about it. She loves Little Women. She grew up with Little Women. And to be able to tell a room of Academy voters why she shook this story mm -hmm. up in the way that she did, it's, it's very mm -hmm. powerful. To go back for a second to the kind of director's director of it all, you, David, you wrote a really great piece about Pain and Glory mm. that I feel like we should talk about because I feel like that also falls into that sort of body of work category, like with Cron and, and Roma, where people love him so much but also, yes. this film is very strong, but it maybe won't be just about this film. Yeah, I think that Pain and Glory, if you didn't have Parasite right there, would be a larger part of the conversation because Pedro, Morda Pedro Moldovar has been in the Oscar conversation before mm -hmm. for various films. This is a real meditation on his own life as a director and his body of work. And even we got to interview Antonio Banderas back in Toronto. He talked about how there are scenes in there that are drawn from the beginning of both of their careers where mm -hmm. they they worked together decades to ago. To me, it was a nice um, bookend to Roma in that way, where it's like if Roma was very much about the beginning of his life mm -hmm. and how he became the director who he was, that Pain and Glory was very much about how you look back on your work as a director and try to pull together the threads of what it means. And my, my feelings about Pain and Glory are that the second half, is, is there these, there's this string of scenes that are so enormously moving to me <laughs> that if, you're, if you know this director and you understand what he's doing, it's, it's really hard not to get a little swept up in it. Yeah. And I think looking at the best director race and the kinds of choices that are made, there is, there's an affection for something like that. There's an affection for a director really putting himself out there in a, in a, in a kind of meta-textual way. And yeah. although to JD's point, like the epitome of art house. He's gonna have right? a tough like, time. He's, he's, he's not like, a lot uh, for nomination. Yeah, this, is a, yeah. this is a movie that I think um, will be loved by those people who really love movies and yeah. love his work. Will it I think the elephant in the room in this one is Martin Scorsese. When you're talking mm -hmm. about um, the Irishman and figuring out if Hollywood will see this as a kind of swan song, this very long uh, movie with all of these actors who are associated with this very particular genre, which is clearly passing from the world, right? The baby boomer mobster movie yeah. is, you know, its days are numbered, probably. Right, but also the opposite of a long shot, right? Right. So it, totally the opposite. Yeah. So but he's it's, the it's, one. It's he's the, the one. theme in a lot of ways. Right. Because you have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too, also mm -hmm. fits into that a little bit. Totally. I really do believe that it's. It, it, now, I don't know what's going to happen in terms of the campaigning, but it's going to be interesting. I've, I certainly come into this thinking that Tarantino had the nostalgia card pretty well played. 
Um, but I do wonder how Irishman will resonate with the voters. Mm -hmm. It's certainly um, got some wonderful performance in it. I think it's going to get positive. There'll be mixed reviews in terms of the length. and. But he's so beloved, and the, the the end of this movie really does seem like goodbye. Yes. And so, um, on that score alone, as you're saying, Shana, opposite of a long shot film, this is the establishment candidate. But Correct. you know, could the establishment candidate pull it out? I mean, again, in retrospect, Glenn Close ended up being the long shot that we didn't think she would mm -hmm. be. Right. Right. So and I wonder if the Glenn Close effect on Martin Scorsese. Could be. I mean, this is a movie, I, I think about it right now, and it could go either way. It could um, it could be a movie that people um, don't give the love to because, you know, it is the establishment, it is everybody that you've watched, or they just fall all, all over. So yeah. I don't know. But it's hard to count him out for sure, and I think they're only just getting started in their promotional push for this. Um, internally, they're very high on the film, yeah. and you know, I, I, um, I think there'll be a lot of discussion about the debate. I actually think it was very smart of Scorsese to come out and say what he did about superhero movies. Oh, totally. you know, like I think that there are going to be a lot of Academy voters who feel that is true, and are going to want to reward one of their own. Mm. So we'll see. I think in general, for that movie. I really liked it, but I do wonder if there's going to be a barrier for it, I mean, just the sheer length of it. I do wonder if it's not a propulsively plotted movie. No. And I think, I unlike- I still haven't seen this film and you're doing a great job of talking me out of it. <laughs> well, I don't know, I really liked it, and particularly the last hour, I okay. thought was pretty brilliant. Okay. But compared to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is- also long, also admittedly. long, but it doesn't quite have that slow burn. It, it it moves much more quickly. It involves you in a more visceral way, and it still has that same, I think, mournful quality. Yes, so I, I, I mean that's I'm why I feel like that, that will perform better overall. I'm, I'm a little bullish on the Irishman's chances. It'll definitely be nominated across the board. I personally think Joe Pesci, who will not be campaigning much for this movie, but he's quite terrific in a very against type role. Can we take a beat to talk about the campaigning of it all? Um, I would just love to hear your thoughts. So obviously while the rest of the world is in various locations having um, very serious political campaign conversation, when we talk about campaigning, we're talking about marketing and personal appearances and lobbying in a very different way, right? But I want us I don't know, I feel like it's such an important part of how we, t that, that where the differences between who we think should win and will win, I think sometimes really does come down to money, right? Mm -hmm. So we um, we did a piece uh, on EW.com talking about Evan Rachel Wood, had, mm -hmm. who is a member of the Academy, had called out in sort of like a series of tweets, the question of like, what would it, what would it be like not to see the same 12 people get nominated? What if we took big money out of campaigning? Obviously, I think that's a, um, a very big idea uh, and not subject to any of the same sort of necessary checks and balances that when we're talking about politics, <laughs> we, like money really should come out of it. But what do you think, I don't know, I feel like we we often in this world of entertainment journalism we operate, we allude to the campaign of it all without getting into many of the, the specifics of it. I think marketing can help something that is great reach more people than it ever would have been seen by, and I think that is a really great function of marketing. Mm -hmm. um, but what what are your takes? What do you think 
is happening mm. right now with where we are in Hollywood. David, take it. I'll take that oh, one. Punting. Well, <laughs> I think Parasite's, if you look at a movie like Parasite, which its distributor is Neon, and their strategy has always been very targeted nominations. So they were the ones who acquired Itania. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of surprised Tanya launch, uh, Toronto launched a few years ago and got Margot Robbie a nomination and Alison Janney ultimately won Best Supporting Actress for that. And then you have a movie like Little Women, which is a Sony movie. It is a studio movie in a couple weeks ago. It you know, hasn't premiered yet, it didn't go to a festival, but it started screening for guilds. And every single day of the week. Literally every, every day. Every single day of the week, they packed a house. You, I believe, Shana, were turned away. I couldn't even get a parking spot. I couldn't even get a parking spot. But also, spot. not just did they just screen the film, the cast and directors the, and producers and other crew, multiple people were at multiple screenings is, every single night. There was one night where Timothy Chalamet went I might have the order wrong. I believe he introduced the king at a nearby hotel, which is the Netflix film that he's the lead in, ran to the Little Women screening for the Q&A, and then went back to the king for event for a reception. Yeah. So it, it's constant. I actually got to talk to um, Laura Dern at a marriage story, a few, marriage story event a few weeks ago, and she was talking about literally starting at 7 a.m. because she's in Little Women as well as, well as marriage story, and just going all the way through every day of the week, it's it's a lot. Yeah. And if you really want to be in this conversation and you're not like Joe Pesci, about, it's like, like oh, he's never gonna get out there. who's in the room, because we're in the room because we're media, right? So we're invited to this for various reasons, right? They want more coverage from us. They want you know, us to talk about them on podcasts like this. We're not the only people in the room. There's also the actual voters for different guilds and sure. for the Academy, right? So Little Women was really stacking Screen Actors Guild that first week. Um, which is a huge body as a precursor Mm -hmm. for their awards. Uh, They do an ensemble award, which tends to overlap with Best Picture a lot, and their acting categories, the majority of those who are nominated for that tend to get nominated for an Oscar. Um, And then various Academy members, Craft Guild. I mean, it's it's a different strategy for every movie, but they're really trying to get in front of the industry as much as possible. When I talked to Taryn Edgerton for our previous episode, it was in the midst of him having a similar week of, like, every kind of event, HFPA, he was at the Santa Barbara Film Festival, but also Paramount put on a live um, event at the Greek Theater where they screened Rocket Man. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the Hollywood Symphony accompany it, Elton John and Taryn sang songs after it, and it was essentially like the largest for your consideration event I've ever been to. Yep. I, you know, I mean, it was it was uh, something you could buy tickets to from the public, and there were a lot of fans who did that. But it was also quite clearly there were guild tickets available. There were other, and I walked out of it feeling like that was like the biggest awards campaign event I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. Um, the scale of it was we're talking like you know twelve thousand people or something, and you're like, right. oh, is it a rock show? Or actually, I think everyone here is very clear they're being um, courted. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting how campaigning has changed, and I think much like political campaigning become a uh, 24-7 information Sport. war. Yeah. Um, I have many thoughts about it. Obviously, they're very smart people who run campaigns. Uh, Lisa Tabak at Netflix, Cynthia Swartz is a legend in the industry for running these kinds of campaigns. Um, I'm not sure... Um, 
how determinative some of these things are. Mm -hmm. it, it, it really does, in the end, become a human process where people make decisions. You know, the days of the, dare I say, the Harvey Weinstein of it all, where mm -hmm. uh, one person through force of will can create um, an Oscar uh, campaign uh, that is successful doesn't seem to be where we're at. I do feel like... What do you think has changed that? Is it like a different economics? Is it different... I think there's just so many different... More movies? More conversation. It's hard to blanket the conversation the way that they were able to do at Miramax in the, in the heyday, mm -hmm. where... A, you didn't have this kind of endless conversation on social media and in and, and terms of, you know, just everybody's being incredibly savvy about culture. Um, they did have something that was great, um, leaving all the personalities and villains out of the piece, which was taste, and that they were very good at curating things and in some ways just predicting what... Um, um, what the public might resonate to, uh, often small British films, when I'm going to now blank on the Queen Victoria movie that Judi Dench was in when she had, you know, and they oh, had like... Victorian uh, Abdul. Um, no, before Victorian Abdul, the first one. Um, what was it called? Oh. Um, with um, Billy Connolly. And it yes. was like, anyway, it's what anyway. it's what made Judi Dench an international superstar yeah. that she remains. <laughs> but um, that was all a choice, a television project made for television in Britain that Harvey Weinstein and his crew were able to create an Oscar moment around and they got they got good at that and I think we'll be looking at who who will be able to do that in this new in this new era but mm -hmm. as far as what what it all means I think it's part you know we're, we we don't have we don't we're not going to take it to the Supreme Court you know like Citizens United but it's part of the razzmatazz of it all I think to kind of throw a lot of foolish money at these things and you know it's almost a self-sustaining ecosystem you know there's there's a need for them to spend the money because they're these buckets they have to mm -hmm. do it and and I was with Renee Zellweger uh, yesterday um, and just the marathon that it is it's, for these yeah, people to yeah, kind of be of going to hitting every single thing that you need to do and you must do now I will say this there are exceptions every year um, to this some people do a lot of campaigning some people don't you know we've already heard from Brad Pitt that he's not going to campaign uh, at least not in any overt way mm -hmm. no and one wants to say they're campaigning right well that they're would be well remember that God. year oh goodness Monique yeah. um, a big Monique one. and um, oh from um, Oh my goodness! Remember the she did the centerfold, the sort of big ad. Oh, Melissa Leo. Melissa Leo, <laughs> the Melissa Leo of it all. Yeah, which worked out. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like it was maybe in that spite. That was more of about that. in spite more of about she Melissa was Leo such a front runner that. that year. Yeah. Uh, I also you know, to go back to Evan Rachel Wood's comments. One thing that Netflix has done is, and one of the reasons why we thought Roma was going to be such a contender was that. They hadn't really gotten a lot of precursor nominations, but Yalitza Aparicio and um, Marina de Tavira were both nominated, and yeah. it really showed a lot of Academy love for it. And those are not the usual faces no. of the Oscar conversation. Those are actresses, you know, in the former's case, and in Yalitza's case, not a professional actress, mm -hmm. and in Marina's ta uh, case, you know, a professional actress for a long time who finally got recognition. She'd been great for so long. Yeah. So. This campaigning has also allowed actors that maybe wouldn't, mm -hmm. who, who don't know the people to go out there. Is there anyone in this in this season who you think might be similarly might similarly benefit, who would have been sort of lower awareness of them, but that awards campaign marketing money might help elevate in a way that, you know what, 
from our mm. perspective, we're like, even if they don't win, we're just glad that more people have heard of this person and they're gonna get cast in more projects and we're gonna get to benefit from seeing their great work. Mm. Oh gosh, that's a hard one this year. You mentioned oh. last week Richard Jewell. Yeah. And that actor, I think he was in Itania and a few. Well, he's a phenomenal actor. This is where we quickly try to remember. <laughs> His name. His name, which is, we can work But which on. speaks to the yes. point being made, which is um, not someone but who has been on this tour before. And again, we don't know how the film will be received or even if it will even be an awards player, but it is being scheduled. Paul Walter Hauser. Paul Walter, Paul Walter Hauser. Hauser, yeah. I think Paul Walter Hauser, the early buzz is big, but as you say, we have no idea. No idea. We have no idea. He was if the security guard, like sidekick guy in Itania, right? Yes, okay. he was... Um, yeah, the bumbling. He well, they Sebastian were both stands bumbling. Yeah, so it was. Um, now I'm going to forget their names. And but he, he was in Black Klansman. Yeah, yeah he's not suddenly smarter than all these guys. I'm literally just looking at he's it. Sort of <laughs> he's sort of popping up everywhere in this yeah. like, big show. This is a very role. like a lead. So and it's like someone who could tick that box. And certainly, even from the trailer, you see that he's getting to hit a lot of notes as a performer, uh, playing to this type that he's played but a dramatic role of somebody who who has uh, you know found himself way out of his depth in a very serious mm -hmm. situation maybe it, also florence Pugh, who like i mean i think is obviously such a scene stealer and has been in a couple of other right. really great scene stealing moments but i yeah. think the amount of attention that her role in little women may get to be supported now by this bigger machine of marketing may help it definitely make, puts, her, puts out her in a different category in a than she way. was to start yeah. with. I think, you know, we know who Florence Pugh is because we kind of have a PhD in these things, which <laughs> is why we should know who Paul Thomas Hauser is and um, Paul Walter. Oh, Paul Walter. <laughs> oh, Paul Thomas Hauser is not a person. <laughs> um, Paul Thomas Anderson is. But um, I think with uh, Florence Pugh, this is the moment where she gets that sort of stamp of approval to be an A-lister. Because mm -hmm. um, she's done these things that are fairly, um, you know, certainly Midsummer, um, which was a critical hit. and um, Another horror film. Another mm -hmm. horror film. And then um, Little Drummer Girl, which some people watched on AMC as part of the Le Carre, uh cycle mm -hmm. they do. Did fighting with My Family earlier. Yes, year. and mm -hmm. Fighting with My Family, which mm -hmm. people loved. Critics yeah. adored that film. Um, and so I think she's going to be our next major um, star out of this class. Mm -hmm. um, and that she will get major leading roles out of it. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, so you're right, I think it does, it does put her in another category, much as it did Lupita Nyong'o, um, mm -hmm. or others who have you know, used that. Um, Lisa Vikander. And of course yes. Brie Larson, Brie you know, Larson. Um, another example mm -hmm. of somebody who had, had no real profile and then was an Oscar winner. Mm -hmm. And that does happen particularly in Best Supporting Actress, as yes. we all famously know that um, there have been many instances where a newcomer wins that award. Mm -hmm. um, and it could be her. I, I feel a little more Laura Dern this moment than I do Florence Pugh, who I think is amazing, but you never know how that's going to shake out. Yes, I would say... Well, you also get a lot of career wins in supporting actress mm -hmm. Regina King last mm -hmm. year, who right. I actually remember it had been her first film in a while. She had talked about how bewildered she was by the campaigning process versus the last time she did it, which I believe was on Ray, yeah. long time well, before yeah. that, and just how much it had changed. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, David, you and I spoke to... Bong Joon-ho. Bong Joon-ho, the director of Parasite, a film that I don't think we can recommend enough. Yes, um, the best and director is, front And runner, is largely out in the world at this point now, so you mm -hmm. should go see it if you haven't. Um, here is our 
conversation with him. We spoke to Bong. He speaks English very well. He also brought a translator with him. So what you will hear in this interview to follow is a mix of his direct answers to us in English when he did, as well as the audio from his uh, translator who is translating from Korean to English. This is Bong Joon-ho. We're extremely honored to have him here today, director of the film Parasite. Thank you so much for joining Hi. us. Hi. Uh, so this is being called in many circles the movie of the year and <laughs> true in the United States and uh, across the world. How has that experience been for you? It's played at a couple festivals now. So particularly the response in the U.S. has been great. Um, at the festivals, Telluride Toronto in New York, it's been a great experience. Why do you think the response has been so great? Well, <laughs> uh, we get to be interviewed. <laughs> now. We are being interviewed now. Yeah, it's it's a really compelling film. It's also, I think, really tight and very artful. Mm. But also, I think, in contrast to some of your earlier work, very realistic, mm. which was yeah. very affecting and scary in its own way. Mm. Mm. And the theme of class, which has always been such so prominent in your work, in this movie, the direction of the narrative, I feel, really hits you in the gut and I think people have really responded to that. Was there any cultural difficulty or something to understand or some details, very Korean or Asian detail kind of? I think what I loved about the movie was that it felt so specific mm -hmm. and it wasn't a world that I knew necessarily but a lot of the experiences on both ends of the class scale were familiar to me at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think in America we see a lot, there's so much, especially reality television about that ultra rich lifestyle and luxury and the families and mm. and so I think we have in some ways more of an insight into that and if you didn't come from a very working class family mm. maybe that part of it was yeah. less familiar but I liked how what how did you decide to specifically set this in Korea rather than making an American film? So it is true that after Snowpiercer and Okja, I wanted to create a film about people I see around me on a daily basis filled with very Korean details. So I definitely didn't expect the reaction to be so universal from especially the U.S. and Europe. Um, I wasn't concerned about it, but it's definitely something I didn't expect. Suddenly it hit my mind that what was the title of the TV program? The, the CEO, American CEO, is Undercover. Undercover It's very opposite of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Rich, rich man is infiltrated yes. to the, the working class, the world. The, the, this the movie is opposite, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Like David said, your other movies have also really been thoughtful and pointed in different ways about class, even when less realistic. But what what of those messages did you want or did you think you could tell differently with this story? Like what for any audience did you want them to come away with a different or a deeper thinking of class about? So, you know, Snowpiercer is definitely a story about class warfare um, with the poor people in the tail section and the rich in the front cars, but it's still much within the framework of sci-fi um, genre. With Parasite, I wanted it to feel very contemporary and present and for the audience to really think about these issues as they're watching the film, but more so when they leave the theater. 
그래서 마지막에 보면 아들이 그 집을 사겠다고 거의 어나운스를 하잖아요. Mm. So when the son announces that he will purchase the house in the end, um, as you know, we are watching it in the audience, we feel very complicated as we leave the theater and because it's so closely tied to our own futures as well. In terms of the way that you separate these two families, and I feel like each of them are treated both with empathy and there's comedy, mm-hmm. how did you approach their intersection and, and watching them interact with each other? Mm. Actually, there is no villain, the evil guy in this movie. Every, mm-hmm. Everybody, every character remains in how can I say gray zone kind of something. And because of that approach I, t- um, I took, I think the characters seem more realistic. You know, in reality, we don't have clear villains or clear heroes. Um, and because of that, it, I think it's more difficult to predict what will happen in the film and how everything will explode. 하지만 솔직히 말하면 이제 감정적으로 저는 But to be honest, I think in a ratio of 51 to 49, my heart is with the poor family um, as the film sort of follows their perspective um, uh, as the plot progresses. I'm curious what your feelings about the structure are because everyone I've talked to about this movie is like I never knew what was going to happen. Mm. I think of it as a movie in stages almost. Uh, but there's kind of an order to that chaos, if you will. How did you because it feels so tightly controlled. Can you talk a little bit about the way you maintain control over this movie while also leaving the element for surprise? This film very uh, expresses chaos in a very organized manner. You know, the creator can't be the one in chaos. I have to very meticulously deliver this chaos for the audience, and I feel a lot of excitement from that process. The storyboard was actually published in Korea and it will be published in the U.S. as well. But if you look at the storyboard, um, uh, particularly with the climactic sequence, the the storyboard is almost exactly the same with the finished film. That's how organized and meticulous I was in um, uh, creating that chaos. And I hope the audience feels a lot of excitement from that particular cinematic moment. But with that meticulous storyboard but I always hope my actors they still remain alive or uncontrollable kind of yeah so they are wild beast yeah in, in a good way so room to play around yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 was there anything you had to pull them back from places where they were too wild and you were like keep this quieter keep it simpler <laughs> 조정을 별로 해본 적이 없는 것 같아요. 그러니까 그 특히 그 So I actually don't um uh, I don't really control my actors that that way particularly um uh, uh, in the end the the actors already know more about their own characters than I do. There's always a point where our relationships are overturned. In the beginning I tend to explain more about these characters and afterwards the actors know more about um their own characters so I really relied on their instincts. I saw you in another interview say that uh you used to tutor for a rich family, and that was <laughs> one of the inspirations for this movie. In general, the movie feels so lived in, even at its most heightened. What was, how did you draw from your own experiences and what you've seen in your life to craft this kind of in- intimate but epic world? 
대학교 때 내가 아르바이트를 뭐 일을 많이 했어요 이것저것 과외뿐 아니라. So I had a lot of part-time jobs when I was in college, not just tutoring. <웃음> 네, 도넛도 팔고 그래서 학교 매점에서. I sold donuts at the school cafeteria. 그런 류의 일들이 종종 사람들을 되게 많이. What's good about those jobs is whether I intend to or not, I end up observing a lot of people, and that's the fun part. 특히 그 과외 선생 같은 거는. Particularly with jobs like tutoring or you know babysitting, you are entering someone else's home. You inevitably witness a lot of people's personal lives. 나도 그 부잣집 중학생 가르칠 때그 아이가 나를. So I taught a middle school boy for a very rich family, and he took me to every corner of the house and showed me around. He was a pretty funny guy, and that it's also in the film. But they had that house had a private sauna on the second floor, and it was my. I was very surprised to find one in a private home. The boy, boy and me spent really wonderful time in the rich house, and I fired very quickly. <laughs> 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 We never studied, and so yeah. The other element of this film that I love is that it's often very funny, and often in a way that helps get your ideas across. How do you view the the potential of comedy um, in in service of your story? 그러니까 뭐 똑같은 상황이나 어떤 대사여도 그 거리인 것같아요그래서제 코미디가 뭐 모르겠어요. 영어 단어로는 So I think my comedy is always infused with very complex layers. You know, it's it's a type of comedy that makes people chuckle or makes people just break out in laughter, but they feel bad or sorry that they actually laughed. We've been talking about this a lot when we started to talk about the Oscars and about the Golden Globes and about the awards part of it all. The Oscars, in particular, have not historically been particularly favorable for horror films in particular. Do, do you consider Parasite a horror film? I mean, I think it's less important to an audience in many ways, but the question comes up over and over again when we talk about awards. More black comedy, more social drama, character-driven, so, you know, this film is a black comedy, social drama. It's also narrative driven by characters. It also has action and slapstick comedy. So it's very difficult to define the genre of this film. And for me to hear that is a blessing and a compliment. So when we first screened this film at Cannes, one American reporter wrote about how we shouldn't struggle to define the genre of this film. Bong Joon-ho is a genre unto himself, and that actually made me happier than receiving the award. It's a compliment that I always want to hear. This has been a year already where some films and the way that they use violence have really raised more and more questions, I think, especially in America, as we contemplate how to deal with violence and what that looks like on film. One of the things I loved about Parasite is I felt like the violence on film was shocking, but appropriate and deserved. Like, you really built the narrative towards it. So even though in that final party scene it is grotesque and, and bloody and awful, it didn't feel out of place? Mm. Is, yeah. is that I fair to that's say? Totally right. yeah. How did you think about how much is the right amount of violence and mm. blood and gore and stabbing and all of that? Like, <laughs> how do you, it gets it gets in there? But like, how was there was there something that was too much, or where did you find to draw that line? 
그러니까 기본적인 접근 방식의 문제인 것 같아요. 뭐그 신체가 얼마큼 I think it's really about the basic approach you take with the violence more so than you know how much blood you see or how much of a you know how much bodies you see on um, on screen. I I really think that in Parasite there's an underlying sadness um, regarding this violence throughout the entire film. And you know just before the climactic sequence, there are a couple scenes which present the opportunity to avoid the violence, to avoid the tragedy it, but it's an opportunity that none of the characters could actually hold on to and I think that that reflects the the sadness that we all experience in our modern times I wanted to wrap sort of where we started which is you mentioned being surprised by American reactions to this film and, and global really and what have you learned about your movies reach and and the way they can touch people no matter where they live 감독과 영화를 만들면 항상 불안해요. 찍을 때도 불안하고. So as a filmmaker, when I'm shooting or during post, I'm always very anxious. You know, I spend years preparing for this film, and I'm aware of the entire process. But for the audience, you know, they just come to the theater and you know experience the two hours that I present. So they're actually very calm and cold when it turns to, um, when in terms of their reaction to the film. So there's always that basic underlying anxiety I have when I present this film to the to the world. 근데 그것이 뭐 미국이건 프랑스건 뭐 일본이건 한국이건 So regardless of the country whether it's US, France or Korea, you know, we can never figure out the audience. We they're not something that feels actual. So the answer I always come come to is that I should just satisfy myself, you know, we never know who this, you know, who the audience is. So I need to create a film that I want to watch that satisfies me. Um, and that was the case for Parasite, but you know, thankfully the reaction for this film has been great and I'm very happy. Well, thank you so much, Director Wang Junho. Thank you. This has right. been The Awardist on EW. Welcome back to The Awardist. Uh, it was so great to hear from Bong about Parasite. Thank you, David, for having so many great questions to ask him there. I feel like I, like many people in this office, was a little just overwhelmed <laughs> by how great he is. And Yes, um, to be in the presence. <laughs> to be in the presence was a, was a little intense, I'm not going to lie. Um, all right. Uh, our tradition on the awardist is to make some bold takes as people who are asking, like commenting at length about what's going to happen months from now. I feel like it's only fair to hold us to um, some ridiculous bold takes ourselves, or at least make us say them out loud and record them, even if we never come back and then put our feet to the fire. So, David, what is a what is a bold take you would like to offer today? So, in the spirit of all that uh, pain and glory discussion today, I believe in addition to foreign language film for pain and glory nomination, that Pedro Moldovar will at least get in for one of screenplay, original screenplay and best director. Okay. Well, that is an esoteric and clever bold take, and I feel inadequate with my own <laughs> Thank bold you, take. Lady. I feel esoteric that I must make the obvious bold take, and it is only bold because it is so early in the race. But I see uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as best picture. Mm. And no one here has predicted best picture. No. No, so, so I'm going, this is first. the biggest, boldest of the takes because it's the big kahuna, the, the big, big award. Kahuna. But, um, and this isn't to say that I don't think there's a lot of great films or, or that I, you know, it's not about my, this is, what. how shall I say this? I like this movie a lot. I guess it's also a cynical bold take in the sense that I think this is how the politics will line up for this film. Um, I just think that it has the right combination of elements for a best picture. It is nostalgic. It is features two beloved 
at this point, I guess we can call them icons of, of cinema, uh, Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio, doing really great work as actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, it is going to reflect a great affection for Tarantino. Um, so that's what I think. And and uh, podcast listeners can throw their <laughs> can throw their AirPods out. I don't know, um, but I feel like it's just it's just a film that resonates in Hollywood. Um, and I actually I liked it a great deal. I think uh, so. I do love the movie as well as think it will probably win. But I also think from as we debate the would or should or coulda shoulda woulda mighta, I think that it's just the kind of movie that will resonate with the Academy. I agree with you. Why am I so much better at asking this question than I am at answering it? Um, uh, I want to say, we, we briefly talked about Best Supporting Actress and how this can be a time that someone sort of jumps into this, especially with the right support behind it. So I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb and say... Divine Joy Randolph from Dolomite. Mm. Wow. For Best Supporting Actress. So now I she feel like Mr. Obvious corner here. Right? She's I mean, I just feel like there, it, it would be, it would be the kind of thing that thrusts someone into a level of attention that it has not been previously enjoyed. Um, certainly, I would love to see that happen at the Globes. I think there is a, is a solid chance yes. there. And I, it's, that's, that's my bold take. I uh, I saw this Dolomite in Toronto with our critic Leah Greenblatt, and at one point in the middle of the movie, I just whispered in her ear, "Who is that?" Yeah. And she went, "I don't know," <laughs> but we were both really blown I away. I think by that her. she is going to get what you wish for her. I, I think that is going to happen. There's always at least one or two, particularly in that category, where they single out somebody. You know, I think about Jackie Weaver or people mm-hmm. who have gotten mm-hmm. attention. In, in films that just kind of pops off the screen and their reward is that nomination. So, okay, so we have two right. quirky, exciting, interesting takes and one which is probably less less exciting but, because, bold. but bold because it's early. And these are bold takes. These are bold. I, I feel you, bold. I appreciate it. I feel like you were really like living up to the, the name of that. Yes. <laughs> That's our show, everyone. Thank you, David. Thank you, JD. Um, you can find complete awards, awardist and awards coverage on EW.com, on our social channels. Where can people come and tell you whether they agreed or strongly disagreed with your opinions? You can find me on Twitter at DavidCanfield97. You can find me on Twitter at David Candlefield 97 so that you can yell at David instead of me. You no, can yell at me and um, no, at, J- at J.D. Heyman uh, um, on the Twitter machine. And I'm at Shane and Naomi. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please subscribe. Please make sure that you rate and comment. Uh, it makes a really big difference in how people find this and what more great podcasts we can bring to you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for, for joining us. This is The Awardist on EW.